0: You're listening to The Hour with Resident Advisor. The Hour! This This is 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 The Hour. hour. You're listening to The Hour. This is The Hour.
1: With Resident Advisor.
2: Hello and welcome to The Hour. My name's Ryan Keeling and I'm the editor at Resident Advisor. The Hour is Ares' blend of documentaries, discussion, interviews and lots of other things besides. Coming up on this month's show, Steffi is about to release her next album and she'll be talking to us about her creative process. We also have a piece we've been calling Worst DJ Sets. We have a string of DJs, including Tiga, Lena Willikins, and Jamie326, talking about nightmare experiences behind the decks.
3: I'm mixing, I'm spinning. While I'm queuing up a record, a roach falls out the ceiling. and falls right on the record. And, you know, it scared, scared the hell out of him. I'm like,
4: ah! And they said, hey, do you have any black eyed peas? I was about to play at Panorama Bar playing after Mike Dunn. There was four USBs in the four CDJs. And of course, I pulled out the one that was playing on his very last track. And, and he was like, oh, and, you know, I was mortified.
2: But we're going to open on a breezier note by asking a bunch of RA staff members what their favorite festival was from this past summer. marie Kamei over in our LA office is going to get the ball rolling.
1: Digital exceeded my expectations and was my favorite one of the summer. I think the reason why it was so special was because the festival emphasized the hangout aspect of the weekend and everyone gets to the grounds around 3 p.m. on Friday, but the music doesn't start till about 8 p.m., which allows you to settle in, meet your neighbors, grab some drinks, and truly arrive at the festival. All my memories of the weekend are vignettes or hangout moments with my friends, which I thought was very special and unique to Nocti.
5: I'm Stephen Sitmus, and I'm a staff writer at Resident Advisor. And my pick for the year is Houghton Festival. So Houghton Festival was good for a number of reasons. Number one, it had a 24 hour license, so the music didn't stop. It was amazing weather. The sound systems were excellent. And perhaps most importantly, it was one of those events where everything seemed to come together at the right moment. It was just a perfect storm. One of the most unique things about it was the fact that people were playing extremely long sets. Craig Richards himself played for 20 hours in total and DJs were often playing five hour sets, often playing two or three sets amongst the weekend. So it was a really unique way to see a lot of DJs doing their thing in the perfect surroundings. For a first event, it was really remarkable how well it went.
2: Hello, my name's Georgina. I work in the ticketing team here at RA. I get to go to a lot of festivals each summer
6: and so it's probably easy to get quite jaded with a few but um, Love International in Croatia holds a special kind of magic for me. It has the three Bs, the beach, boat parties and Barbarellas which I think is one of the best clubs in the world. Watching the sunrise while you're at Barbarellas every morning is incredible. Also some amazing sunrise sets this year so Gideon and Craig Richards playing reggae on the beach between like six and midday in the morning was amazing. And Tisno is such a beautiful location that you end up coming back feeling like you've had a holiday as well as an amazing festival, which is quite a luxury compared to coming back from most other festivals.
7: Hi, my name is Connor and I work on the marketing team here at Ore. Yeah, I went out to Atlas Electronic Festival in Morocco at the tail end of August.
8: I guess there's a bit of a spotlight on Morocco as a new festival destination in recent years. So Atlas takes place at a place called Villa Yana, an eco-villa which is located about 20 minutes outside um, Marrakesh in the desert. And I guess what sets Atlas apart um, from the others is its holistic approach to production. It's got a really small crowd and uh, preserving this communal atmosphere is really important to them. There's a whole cast of popular international DJs like Ben UFO, Shanti Celeste and Midland. But Atlas is really about uh, providing African artists with a platform and showcasing their music. Take Atikak, the popular Ghanaian artist. He performed his debut live show with his band on African soil. So, other groups like Group Bana, Amazing Blues, and a whole cast of local DJs from Casablanca, all showcasing this Gnawa sound, which is like a popular strain of North African music, which is almost
7: trance like in its qualities. It was like a window into a whole new world.
1: I'm Ray Philp, and
9: I'm a reviews editor at Resident Advisor. Earlier this year, I went to um, LEV Festival, um, which is in uh, Guion in Spain. It's basically an audiovisual festival um, that I found really impressive, and I came away from it thinking of it as a good example of a local festival that, instead of booking a lot of hot headliners, simply tried to offer a distinctive experience.
0: I'm Amy, I work on the Festival Partnerships team here at RE, and my favourite festival this year was Nyengi in Uganda. It takes place at the Nile Discovery Beach at a little resort called Jinja, which is actually the source of the Nile. So just imagine like Jurassic Park vibes and like an open-air festival site with four stages across the entire thing. Musically, it's a broad range of talent from across East Africa, also a sprinkling of European artists as well just to keep the mixture nice and interesting. One particular highlight was an Electra Okoli artist from Uganda called Otim, He's also on the Nyengi label, and he's playing at Unsound, I think, in October. So yeah, keep an eye out for him. And then a local Kampala artist called DJ Kampire. She was amazing. I loved Nyangenenge because it was just really powerful to see people put on festivals in countries and places that simply don't have the infrastructure to do it. I think we just take it for granted in Europe that it's a lot easier to put festivals on when you've got the resources and the infrastructure all set up. So yeah, big ups, Nangie Nangie crew.
7: I'm Nick Baird, head of festival partnerships at RA, and I just got back from Labyrinth Festival in Japan, which I absolutely loved. You've got this beautiful setting up in the mountains, this incredible sound system, wonderfully understated production um, and set design. Stage is like really minimally lit. There's no flashing lights. The dance floor is completely pitch black, so it creates this really focused, almost like menacing dance floor experience if you want it. The crowd were all absolutely amazing um, there's a real like rave atmosphere going through it the whole time all the artists absolutely brought their a-game and it's kind of curated so it's all built up towards this final set which peter van hosen played and i have to say i think that was in 20 years ago into festivals the best techno set i've ever seen it capped off a really really special weekend
2: okay i'm now going to hand over to matt mcdermott ra's la-based staff writer to introduce
9: our next feature How about when you don't kill it? That's the question Tiga asked in a Facebook post a few months ago after a DJ gig in Rome went badly. Right now, that post has about 30,000 likes and 3,500 shares, so it's safe to say it struck a chord. So Tiga, you've obviously thought a lot about DJing. Yeah. And from a philosophy standpoint, it kind of goes along with the note that you posted on social media after the Rome gig. It seems like DJing to you is about being selfless, and part of that is recognizing when you just didn't connect with the crowd. Do you agree with that?
2: Yeah. Well, I mean,
8: I think I uh, I, I think a lot. You know, I'm a, I'm a, <laughs> I think about things a lot, and well, with DJing, I guess it's like a lot of things. It's like when it when it all connects and everything works out well and you kind of get all the answers, you know, and, and, and there's not that much to think about in this. And for whatever reason, and there's a lot of reasons, when things don't quite connect, then there's a lot of questions, you know, and your mind's kind of racing. And I think anybody who are, kind of works on a craft, it could also be like an athlete. I think anybody who does something a lot, you know, thousands and thousands of times, you know, you hopefully, you know, you know, learn to see the patterns, you learn to, to fine tune what makes things work and what doesn't, and you learn also to uh, you kind of analyze what happened, and you and hopefully you start to learn why things happen. I think the selfless thing. I don't know. I can only speak for myself. I just I know. Simply put, like the less I think while I'm DJing, the better it is. The less I'm thinking about it and talking about it. Generally, that's that's the better the performance was. And once. You no, if I'm actually thinking when I'm up there, if I have any time to analyze it, there's probably
9: something going wrong. And what led you to write the note after the Rome gig? That was the night where you were thinking a lot. The funny thing with the Rome party is, I mean, the party was
8: fine. From the outside looking in, it was like a 7.5. It wasn't really a disaster. It was actually funny because my friend who was with me, like who took the picture and stuff, you know, everyone was asking him after. Because the reaction of the post it was so massive it was so funny man I had people coming up to me as if you know like <laughs> hugging me as if I had just you know survived a war or something but um but my friend everyone was asking him like privately like was it really so bad is T okay and he was like it was fine like I didn't even notice anything you know which was kind of which which was a little bit the point was it wasn't about sometimes are no fireworks to announce that it didn't work. It was more about that internal feeling of when you're a little bit the weak link. And what led me to post on that night, I don't know, you know, I'm not, I'm not really a consistent social media guy. I don't really, I've wrestled with it in the past with I guess how much to reveal, you know, how much to share. I'm not, I'm quite private by nature. And that particular case, I was just like, I don't know, I was kind of upset. I've been DJing for twenty-five years and thousands and thousands of shows. I know the pattern. And sometimes you're upset, you're a bit disappointed about your performance, and you and that particular night I don't know why, I just I don't know. I I, I wanted to I wanted to express it.
9: Showing a bit of brutal honesty in this case seemed to resonate. Can you talk a little bit about the response you received after the note?
8: The level of support from not just from
9: kind of fans
8: or the public but from other djs was that i was pretty i couldn't believe it i mean it was like a who's who i was getting letters from like derek may you know like and i mean it was just djs of every strata and scene and whatever were really i think essentially almost every dj was like yes you know like they all knew the feeling so i think everyone felt quite unified I loved it. I mean, I was I was quite touched, actually. Like I, I was quite overwhelmed by how kind the reaction was, like how supportive it was. It was really, it really turned into a little bit of like a kind of a happy story, you know. Like it, it was quite. It seemed to only bring out nice feelings, you know, They're like both in the comments and the feeling when when you're 100% honest, and then it's when it's also then received really well. And it just probably more than anything, what it touched on is that. Everyone kind of wants that, you know. That feeling is more scarce right now than the feeling of the fish islands with 100,000 people screaming your name and the fireworks. You know, we're all being bombarded constantly by what appears to be these perfect lives where everything is impossibly amazing all the time and we all, everybody probably feels a bit, you know, we all probably think, well, how much of that is bullshit? How much of that is real? and also the pressure you're under whether it's implied or whatever you know the pressure you're under as a public person to not reveal weakness you know to to not show the cracks because and and that's insane i mean it's like i you know you actually get managers and pr people and teams you know telling you not to show weakness, you know, not to say a party wasn't good or not. You know, it's all in in the camera work and the angles and the smoke and mirrors. It's a numbers game now. and People are scared of anything that might, uh, let's say, influence the stock price.
9: Well, Tiga's note had a lot to do with the ideal portrayal of life and art that's required by social media, as well as the DJ's responsibility to connect with the crowd. It also made me remember that one of the best things about going out is that you never know what's going to happen. Sometimes things go wrong, sometimes it's your fault, sometimes it's someone else's, and sometimes it's pretty damn funny. We thought we'd open up the floor to some of our favorite DJs, asking them about a memorably bad night behind the decks. The answers range from the comic to the poignant.
3: (laughs) I'm laughing because while I was waiting for you I started, started telling the story a little bit to my girlfriend and it was like just the opening line just had me fucking laughing myself at my own shit.
9: I called up veteran Chicago DJ and disco edit master Jamie326 to talk about his experiences.
3: Basically it started off like this. I'm 21. I met this couple. Me and my cousin met these girls at this club we used to go party at. They asked me to DJ their New Year's Eve party in in their loft. And so I was like, okay, cool. No problem. And I do the party, you know, it really starts rocking and then some of my other friends come through. So, of course, now, you know, it's New Year's Eve, you know, they can't really leave because in Chicago, to strike at midnight, people shoot their guns in the air. You want to be indoors somewhere by midnight. So they they ended up being stuck with me. My friend got mad because, (laughs) because of the party situation, he wouldn't let me use his records. I had just made a mix so uh, at home like the night before so I basically had to play a mix and I was pretending like I was spinning and it went good for a while they didn't know what was going on until one of the girls came over there she was like are you playing a tape and I was like it's it's just you know I was like it's just an edit you know it's just just an edit I'm playing. So I went back and I kept on, you know, you know, playing this mix. So then what I had to do, because I had to flip the tape over, I would play a record, you know, and, and I would blend the tape, you know, back in, you know, and, and, and play it off that way. So, well, after a while, the the night was supposed to go well into the, you know, the morning. So I had to play this tape a few times so then they really noticing what's going on because they're in the same fucking mix <laughs> you know? now i'm trying to get paid from these chicks who don't want to pay me because i was playing the tape they're trying to skirt and dodge around paying. then my friend pulls the power <laughs> on the equipment because they're not paying so we ended up in there till about seven in the morning trying to get paid then we had to carry all this equipment down, you know, and break everything down, you know, the full sound system down and all of that. And of course, you know, you got people who didn't get paid or know they're not getting paid. And then they spent New Year's Eve with me. So, you know, they were happy with me, you know, so (laughs) it was a real it was real. So it was a real quiet ride home. Now this is where part two comes in. I'm like, man, you know, I gotta make some money. You know, I gotta take care of my guys, regardless. I gotta take care. So there were these girls I knew that would always throw like parties in their house. You know, with the with the gangs. I did this party for them before, so I was like, hey, happy New Year. You know, y'all wanna have a party? Then they were down. So we ended up doing this party in uh in the basement of like this this interesting house. I got the, got the party and I came over there and we set the equipment up and it was like a very small house. And we brought like a full mobile sound system with bass bottoms and all of that. When I would play there, it's like dust and stuff from the, the ceiling, from the floorboards would fall. One of the hottest tracks that the kids, you know, the younger crowds really liked was Cashmere, The Percolator. And this is like before when it was still underground. They kept requesting it. I played the percolator 25 times, and they went off every time I played it. Um, I'm mixing, I'm spinning, and like I said, stuff is falling out the ceiling. But while I'm queuing up a record, a roach falls out the ceiling and falls right on the fucking record. And you know, it scared scared the hell out of me like, ah! You know, because it's a roach. You know, on the fucking turntable. It still was fun, man. I I have done a you know, interesting events and gigs, but the new year, you know, from nineteen ninety two and ninety three most definitely started off. Very interesting and you know, I took some took some risks to take care of my boys.
2: <laughs> Time for the percolator.
9: at Dusseldorf's Salon des Amateurs. She's since built an international reputation for her fearless style. She shared with us a story about the worst 10 minutes of her DJ career.
10: So you asked me to tell you the story of my worst gig ever. And it was while I was playing at Villa Tonique in Paris and I had like a really bad cold so while the plane was going down I felt really terrible pain in my right ear when we landed in Paris I couldn't hear my right ear was dead I couldn't hear anything anymore but the most strongest ear drops from the pharmacy I had to go directly to the stage five minutes before I had to play suddenly a huge crowd appeared full of suddenly I had, I would say, thousands of people. I felt so nervous that I just took the USB from the DJ before me, I just took it out. Um, The CDJ has an emergency mode, so it produces an emergency loop, which is four beats long, which is quite boring. (laughs) And uh, so I started my set basically with an emergency loop of the last track from the DJ before me it had nothing to do with the music I planned to play and it was totally the wrong bpm so I was super struggling with like what playing next and the first 10 minutes were like a catastrophe for me I felt super insecure just right before after 10 minutes just like short before I I felt like okay now I'm getting more and more into it the electricity broke down totally silence. And I thought, okay, they might fix it soon. So uh, I was on stage waiting and uh, it was silent, silence for almost five minutes, which is a really long time when like people watching you and people are full of expectations and you just stand there and you have like no tools to make them move but within these five minutes i was able to completely reset my brain to calm down getting like more confident in a way so after five minutes silence and the crowd was still there i could just start from zero so this is a story with a happy end these were like the i would say the most terrible 10 minutes of my dj life
9: Nina's story starts to pick out some of the issues that can contribute to a bad DJ set, whether that's technical problems, health issues, or just plain nerves. Here's New York City veteran Kim Ann Foxman.
4: Well, I have to be honest, since I started DJing, I've had so many DJ sets that have felt like they went really bad or, you know, that I just sucked. A lot of times it's simply just because, you know, I felt really uncomfortable. And most of these times it's due to technical difficulties like you know the turntables keep skipping and everyone's staring at you like what the hell or it's just really hard to hear and i've had that so many times like when your monitors go out or when there's this really big delay between what you're hearing in the booth and what's actually going on on the floor this one time i was like oh i'm gonna go to my storage and like pull out a whole bunch of old records to find new stuff that I can put into a live set on the radio but I didn't get to practice I didn't get to know the songs well enough my mixing was like really sloppy (laughs) and it was recorded and I was like no some gigs I just felt like ooh, that was off to a rough start like for example at fabric once I was coming on and this track break night was playing And that's a track that really gets people in the zone. And I was wearing a long sleeve sweater that night and my sleeve got stuck on the needle of the turntable and it dragged it along the record. (laughs) It was like, it was like so slow. And um, yeah, what a a grand entrance. (laughs) But I just laughed it off. I was like, oops. And I didn't take it seriously and I just you know I just kept going I didn't let it knock me down by this time I was you know much more well seasoned with so many horrible experiences and good experiences in the past that I knew just to shake it off and like not let it ruin the rest of my time
9: Here's Chris Cruz. He's the founder of LA's most infamous gay party, Spotlight, and he's a rising DJ himself.
11: One of the stranger DJ gigs that I've had was, I was pretty much first starting out, this was quite a few years ago, and I just happened to be in New York City at the time, and my friend was there and he said, you should play this party tonight. It's really fun. It's a bunch of hip, young, queer, fashionable kids and a cool art party. And it will be really good for you. And I'm going to get you a slot. I said, cool. Great. That sounds wonderful. So I spent that evening, you know, going through my laptop, looking for songs that would be really cool to play for this audience. Maybe some gay cruising anthems from the seventies. Stuff that made me think of like New York, Pet Shop Boys. Uh, high energy stuff, Sylvester, stuff that I thought people would get, you know, and be really into. Uh, And I was burning these to CDs because this was before USB sticks. And we went to the club, we get there and we open the door and it is blasting Black Eyed Peas, my humps. And the dance floor is going off. And I like, my heart sank because I knew I brought all the wrong stuff. The resident dj said okay jump on one song so i put my cd and I, I knew i had burned one pop song it was justin timberlake i think it was the dfa remix of justin timberlake and i pressed play on that and then i mixed in two more songs and by then the entire dance floor had completely left and they were all at the bar so i was pretty much all by myself trying to like look cool dancing to some gay 70s disco scanning the room looking for anybody else who might be into it and i did i caught somebody's eye and they walked over and they said hey do you have any black eyed peas i was like i think they have already played black eyed peas tonight and they said yeah but like it's my birthday like can you just play some more black eyed peas So I went over to the resident DJ who was at the bar drinking and I said, I think you probably have a better handle on this dance floor than I do. Maybe you want to get back on. And he looked at me and he kind of rolled his eyes and he took a long swig of like the rest of his drink and went back over to the booth. He put in his CD and he hit play and it was these familiar bells. It was was Mariah Carey's All I Want For Christmas Is You and the entire bar, everybody stormed the dance floor and just started going off. I stood there watching this New York City downtown, hip, young, queer, fashionable crowd going completely nuts for this Christmas song in August. And I was just asking myself like these deep questions about myself and about DJing and what's the point of me. You know then i i don't know i looked over and i saw some cute kids they were having fun and i thought you know if i can't beat them i might as well join them so i went over and i danced and i had a pretty decent time you know looking back i'm i'm still like proud of what i brought i thought it was good but i'm also glad there was somebody else who was there who was able to give those kids what they wanted that night
9: Danny Wang founded Ballyhoo Records in 1993 and continues to play DJ sets that are brimming with disco exuberance and musicality. He told us about a case of DJ Deja Vu he experienced at a gig in Mexico.
1: This is DJ Daniel Wang. Some of you know me. I'm originally from California, lived in New York for about 10 years, now in Berlin for about 15 years. I made some records from the 90s into the 2000s, sort of retro house disco with some electronic elements. So, um, I've been asked to talk about my DJ gigs that failed, which is, of course, a funny topic. Um, And I definitely have my share of those. I think that's okay. It's part of the territory. We all like a challenge to convince people uh, that maybe they're hearing something in your set that they didn't hear before or didn't know, and they learn to like it or enjoy it. But definitely, I find myself in that situation sometimes. (laughs) And then there are definitely those gigs that don't work out for mostly technical reasons. And that means the club hasn't set up the monitors in the booth correctly, so you can't hear yourself mix. Or maybe the acoustics in that particular space are just really bad, and the sound is bouncing around against a tile wall behind your DJ booth, for example. If those things don't go well, it's not a surprise. There's not much you can do about it. But of all the gigs of mine which didn't work so well, one of them definitely stands out in my memory. Uh, It was maybe about six or seven or eight years ago now, and that was in Guadalajara, Mexico. Uh, I was invited by Red Bull Music Academy to do a little talk there, and then, uh, to make it worth my while, they connected me to a gig in a nearby sort of underground club bar not very big. So the talk went pretty well. I was just talking about the history of house music and the crowd is kind of you know intellectual student uh, sort of culturally interested so I could talk about like Paradise Garage and you know The Saint and how New York disco and Chicago house evolved into electronic music as we uh, knew it after the mid-90s to the 2000s. But then afterwards I always think uh, I want to play my little unique mix of uh, New York disco and house and, you know, retro sounds with the violins and wah-wah guitars, but also with synth arpeggios and interesting elements. Um, so we went to the bar and as soon as I started playing, literally, I started having the funny feeling that something was wrong. You know, like if somebody has farted in the club and nobody knows who farted but everybody is giggling, you know that kind of a weird feeling but it was my music and the more i played about like half an hour an hour into it the more i was thinking there's something really wrong here i'm playing all the wrong music people are not really reacting in fact they're kind of sneering and kind of laughing at me so after about an hour an hour and a half i told the club owner i i think i'm playing the wrong music i think people are not into this at all and he said yeah something you know they're expecting that you're from berlin and you're going to play electronic music And um, the next DJ went on and just played straight-up, typical, kind of commercial, slightly monotonous, club electronic music. And the whole crowd just went off and had a great time. I did feel like, oh, what have I done? You know, how could things have gone so wrong? And then I thought about it afterwards and I had this realization. I suddenly flashed back to my 21-year-old self in San Francisco, and this is the kind of profound part. I had this roommate from Nicaragua who had a lot of friends from Central America, Mexico, and they used to go out to this gay bar called Esta Noche, tonight. where the few times I went, they were playing super classic 70s disco. It was like Alec Constantinos and Michael Zager band Let's All Chant and, you know, Katmandu, The Break, and all these records on TK and Casablanca. And I remember being 21 at the time and being really into that New York electronic kind of deep sound, like Burrell Brothers, New Groove, Strictly Rhythm, Nervous Records. And I remember going to that club and listening to all those violins and guitars and everything, thinking this is kind of groovy, but it's kind of cheesy. And all these old Mexican queens are going off on it and they're laughing and cackling and having good time. And I just want to hear some deep house. And I suddenly realized that at age, what, 42 or 43, I had become that old DJ in that old Mexican gay bar in the Mission District in San Francisco. And I was looking at versions of myself at age 20 or 21, all these young Mexican, uh, mostly male, uh, audience members who were expecting German, modern, European electronic music, and they were hearing me play Wawa guitars, and they just found it pretty ridiculous. For me, it was a lesson, and I felt just as ridiculous, and I still kind of laugh at myself about it. kim Ann Foxman.
4: Another funny thing that happened pretty recently was I was about to play at Panorama Bar, and I was playing after Mike Dunn. I was so excited to hear him play, and he, like, totally killed it i'm a big fan of his and you know i collect his records i love his productions so i was really excited to play after him and you know he's on his last track and there was four usbs in the four cdjs and of course i pulled out the one that was playing on his very last track And so that was a very awkward silence. And he was like, oh, and like, I was like, oh, I was like, oh my God, I am so sorry. You know, I was mortified, Um, but you know, I've learned in these kinds of situations to just sort of cheer. So I was like, yay! And like everyone kind of like cheered. And I do find that like cheering is infectious. So like if you cheer, everyone cheers. So if something goes wrong, um just have a good attitude and like try that (laughs) but you know i think these experiences they make you a better dj because you have to learn how to deal with these kinds of situations and not get totally bent out of shape don't let that dj mixer intimidate you that you haven't played on before think of it as exciting or you know if the power goes out all of a sudden don't get all salty it's not your fault like you know whatever the best advice i could give to anyone who might be in one of these situations feeling you know bent out of shape or uncomfortable or something goes wrong is don't let that moment throw you off because you have the rest of the set ahead of you you know we're all human we all make mistakes brush it off like don't get stuck on it move on because the faster you move on from it so will everyone else you know and just stay present and stay positive
9: listening to all these stories you get a greater sense of each dj's personality than you would from say a thank you note posted after an amazing gig perfection is pretty boring if you think about it when the power goes out people cheer and if the dj brings it back with a perfect song it's an ecstatic moment we can all relate to these stories whether we dj or not what really matters is how you react when things don't go your way and if you can't laugh at yourself you're probably taking it too seriously. Here's Tiga with some last words. Don't forget, you know, this is
8: this is showbiz and it's entertainment and everyone wants some of that illusion. But I think most people understand and most people know that when you get down to a truth, when you find something and you articulate it properly, it almost always really does connect with people for the simple reason that it's true.
2: Steffi is returning this month with her third album for Oscar Ton, which is called World of the Waking State. The album finds her in a moment of musical transition as she moves from the straighter house beats and vocals of her previous records towards instrumental tracks with broken beats and melancholic moods. We've always found Steffi to be a direct and honest interview subject. So we invited her over to our Berlin studio to tell Matt Unicomb about her current creative headspace.
7: Steffi, this album has a pretty hypnotic sound, mm-hmm. especially compared to your previous work. Did you start meditating?
6: No, no, it was not the case. Did you start meditating?
7: Well, it's a pretty meditative album.
6: Oh, okay. Yeah, I think it's subjective, you know, it's like it can be interpreted by different people with different mindsets. So I guess everybody has a different feeling when they listen to it.
7: What kind of feelings did you have while making the tracks?
6: It was very exciting. very excited to see what came out like my goal was to just lock myself into the studio for six weeks to do all the drafts basically and not to have any connection with previous works or a specific goal just like free-falling and not restricted to tempo dance floor all that kind of stuff that you can have in mind I've had things in mind before like when i when i did yours and mind it was a definitely a, a vision that i had for that album and also power of anonymity was something that i wrote to have in my own dj bag Although it was very diverse and some of the stuff wasn't really some, something that would, people would play, I would actually want, want it to be in my DJ sets. So that was my thing for those two albums. And the third one I was like, I just want I just want to go head first, dive into the vibe and see what happens, you know.
7: What kind of headspace do you need to be in to make these kind of tunes?
6: Sobriety. No, yeah, no sobriety. Not not in a sense of not like drinking coffee or or God knows what stimulates you to work, but like just just not not having to worry about anything, not having to worry about traveling, not having to worry about going to meetings. You know, maintain your labels. Just lock the door and just dive into it without being distracted, you know? A pure clean headspace in that sense. But just also not having to worry what the outcome is, you know? Just like doing jams and jams and jams. And for me, that's only, you know, doable when I'm not traveling and I'm not really occupied with my labels or stuff like this, you know? Just lock myself in. Boom.
7: So you took time off DJing to make the album?
6: Yeah. I do that a lot, actually. Like when I'm when I feel that I want to be in writing mode, I just stop traveling and uh, do my do my regular gig here in Berlin because you can go on a bike. Basically, it's a bit heavy with all the records, but you know, as a matter of speaking. But like, not not going abroad to do loads of gigs, just stay here and concentrate on on writing music. And I have to say, like, if you're in a constant process of this was like a six week period of time where I was just drafting everything and then, then afterwards I did like editing and a bit of post-production. You know well, you notice after a couple of days this machine starts to kind of to ding to ding to ding and stuff starts to roll out naturally because you're you're only focused on this and, and the routine gets really um, you get really productive it's a routine kind of a like a cycle that keeps repeating itself and that's how you get warm you know it's like warming up.
7: Why do you think you ended up with this sound?
6: I don't know. Like, I, I, first of all, it's always a challenge for me to to take my stuff to new places. Like, I don't I don't necessarily need to repeat myself. Sometimes it's nice just to make something in a certain vein that you've already produced. But sometimes you just wanna, you know, if you if you're concentrating on an album, which is a story that you want to tell, you want to feel okay. What's my next level? Like, where's my journey going to? And I think after a long period of a lot of house and, a, and, and, and and some techno, I was really ready to move away from the floor to the floor, straight kick structure. Of course, it also has to do with my my background. I think a lot of people know me from my house and techno DJ sets, but like my, my background in in more abstract uh, and uh, uh, electro music. So yeah, I don't know, like it felt, felt good to be, stepping away from the, from the obvious.
7: For me, that's really important. Like my favorite music uh, doesn't have an obvious mood. And I think because of that, the tracks uh, feel especially powerful.
6: a very clear love for the Roland series when it comes to drum computers it's not a secret it's very it's very out there you know you can hear it that i'm using that type of um, uh, drum machines and and for this album for example i i'm really stepping away from sticking to the more classic machines that i've used for writing more dance music and this is all drumming uh, that i've that i've done myself basically The, the, the sounds that i've like created myself with uh, synthesizers which makes the pattern uh, the um, sorry the horizon much much bigger than sticking to certain kind of methods that work for house and techno and I, I don't know like uh, that I, I, I'm maybe as surprises as you are that, like the outcome is is next level and um, what you can say is like certain things come in cycles there's like years where you play a lot of fort to the floor and you're really into housey stuff and and then after a while New stuff comes, you know, into the scene. Like you remember when dubstep became really popular, and then it drifted away. But it it always is a, it's always something new that comes along, and you know, you need a challenge as a as a as a curious music lover. You know, like I can't stick to the same thing over and over again, and. Yeah, there was a natural feel for me to get a little bit more um, into the broken stuff, whether it's electro or um, more like uh, abstract electronic music or something like this, you know
7: a lot of the songs on this album are pretty melancholic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you feel that way while making them?
6: Well, it's interesting that you're actually saying this because somebody was asking me before, like, oh my God, they became really melodic. And actually what I've done this time, which is not very visible, is I've actually cut down on the amount of melodies and strings. The melodies
7: here are way more subtle. Yeah,
6: they're, they're, re- they're really tiny. I kept it really tiny. Some, some of it are, are almost like a, maybe like a experimental lullaby or something. Whereas I when I produce more like housing techno I tend to put so much melody and strings and another layer and another I mean I'm trying to sometimes just for the sake of it write something really stripped down and then I've got a great groove and I'm like oh something's missing I don't know what it is oh yeah of course I've got no melody no strings and here I was really kind of concentrating on the rhythm it was a really um, big aspect for me loads of fun also to write like this and then I kept the melodies really tiny. But because they're so tiny, they're probably very present and it feels like, oh wow, there's there's, there's loads of stuff happening at the same time, you know, but there's, there's actually less <laughs> this time.
11: Yeah,
6: It's a neat, really interesting process to keep it really stripped down to the essence of one melody and and a little a little communication between a couple of sounds on top of all the rhythm because there's a lot of heavy rhythm going on
7: when did you make the decision to take this less is more approach
6: I wouldn't categorize it as a, as a as a minimalistic kind of
7: I don't think it's a bad thing to call it minimalist though
6: no no not at all not at all I mean if, if a track survives with very few elements you know then you've done a great job I mean something like it's not always the more the merrier. I mean, you can overkill quite heavily just like stuffing it and stuffing it. I I leave it up to the listener to, to decide whether that's too much or not.
7: how's the feedback been
6: i'm really happy because as you're saying as well like when you uh, when you got to listen to it like it caught your attention that it was different to uh, the stuff that i've been doing before and of course you're obviously losing people that are more used to the previous work in and you and, and some 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 people are disappointed because they go like oh, oh but most like almost everybody that i've talked to recently doing you know lots of press and and um, and you know uh, gaining interest and stuff like that like they're they're really supportive and they're really uh, yeah pre- pleasantly surprised so i'm i'm really happy with the outcome but i was already really happy when it was done regardless what people were going to say you know it's like delivering a baby would be weird not to be happy with your own child, you know?
7: Do you feel like there's more in this sound that you want to explore?
6: As you might have noticed, like Virginia, for example, is not on the album and she's basically, almost every record, she's my main voice. She has listened to the album and we set down and had a listen and we were like okay are you gonna sing on this and she was like no it's so you without vocals it's it's very you and i think i should not touch it because it's it speaks for itself and i don't need to i didn't i don't need to add anything so in terms of project is this is a separation from what we've been doing on all my albums but at the same time it creates a massive opportunity just to go into this deeper direction with my solo stuff and also at the same time, of course, write like dance floor bangers with her, which is definitely on my list to do. But I think because I'm so passionate about making music, it doesn't it doesn't have to be like now I'm doing this so I can't do that. I've got so much other work that I've been doing meanwhile, you know. So it it doesn't it's never stopping. It's always going on. It's like a ongoing train
7: when you listen back to the tracks do you get the same feeling that you had while making them
6: that's interesting that you're asking this because most of the time when i make the album i need a certain period of time to, to distance myself from the whole project and leave it and not listen to it and then come back to it you know and when i when i did that i was just like pleasantly surprised i was already pleasantly surprised after the six weeks of doing all the sketches and then shutting down my my studio and then a couple of months later opening it up it's like oh god damn, interesting stuff and some of it i couldn't even remember when i did it i was like oh this is i like this 145 bpm well done you know and 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 that's like the excitement about like making music coming back to it and just really feeling like yeah that's that's basically where i was
7: What is your process when you're making a track?
6: Well, my, my flow is like, I go into the studio and I do, most of the time I, I do two jams a day if I'm in really work, in, in work mode, so to speak. So I'll just do a couple of hours with one jam and multi-track it into the computer. So every layer, even the effects layers, Seven minutes long, tweaking. You know, just basically do a jam, but record every, everything separately, so I can just pack it away, start up something, start up something new. Because I, my studio is very hardware based. Just, to, just to make a statement, it's not necessarily analog because I love digital as well. Basically, I like to, I like to work with hardware. So, you can't save everything because some machines won't allow it. So I'll just multitrack it pack it away, leave it for a while, do a second jam and the next day I would either come back to what I've done or start again and then maybe the third day I would go through everything that I've done and then you know with fresh ears and that gives you the best um, view on what you've done rather than sticking with one loop for like three days, that doesn't work for me. I do an intense jam and then when I've got that feeling like oh yeah there's something happening that's where I start recording, do lots of tweaking and then pack it away so he captured a moment of bliss euphoria
7: tell me about the title world of the waking state uh, to me it sounds like it could be a dark title
6: your mind surprises me really <laughs> jesus <laughs>
11: thinking, no,
6: world of surprised. the waking states means basically the state you're in when you're awake so basically you've got sleep you've got dream and you've got your sub, your, your subconscious, but you've also got your your waking state. It's when you're you're right now. It's a very wide kind of field, the world of the waking state. Like like you might look at the world in a completely different way. Could be really simple, you know. Like you're looking at a flower and you go like, yeah, whatever. And I will go like, oh my god, that, did that just pop out of the ground? That wasn't there yesterday. So it's very it's very subjective, you know. Like everybody goes through their daily life in a different kind of way but at the same time and if you look at the artwork World of the Waking State could also be like where are we now like what's happening in the world like so many new topics new issues new things we're dealing with in every album that i i've done so far there's there's reflection of what i appreciate i stated this before like i i, I don't have to invent the wheel of electronic music because that's been done you know it's just like how how much fun do you have with writing your music and how yeah how, how can you reach people with with your music and and also like has it got the right quality to be out on a record you know and hopefully I I can nail that, you know, that's also up to the listener, of course, but, you know, some people appreciate this or that, you know, but my my taste is so wide that um, many things influence me. It's not just to be nailed down to early electronics. When I first started DJing, that was my genre. So that's maybe why my affection is really strong with it like one of your guys wrote about the fabric city like oh like um but this was the person who mixed and uh, what did he say like a joy oh and a shed mix oh it's you well now well it's good to have you on the table and now it's like how can you be with all due respect because i think you're a good guy but listen how can you write this it's so narrow-minded you know when you get a chance to do mix cd it's so much more fun to make something out of it and just license ordinary 15, 16 tracks for to the floor. And I was like, really? Seriously? I was like, okay. The problem that appeared like the last 10 years, if not the last 20 years, but say the last 10 years, because of loads of internet um, appearances through, you know, YouTube, Boiler Room, SoundCloud, whatever, people are so pre programmed of how how somebody plays or what somebody's mindset would be that there's you it's almost like not legit to have hidden secrets do you know what i mean like so you're a disco dj oh my god and he dropped two house records that confused me because he was supposed to play disco but you know what i mean so i think what i'm and that's what i said about the title people like use your ears Stop using your fucking camera or whatever. Use your ears and don't pre-program yourself of what a mix CD should sound or what a record should sound. So give the artist some space to maybe surprise you with something fresh.
7: Why did you choose to end the album with Cease to Exist?
6: Yeah, that's a good question. It's like it's... it's yeah, it's it's an exit track in, in many ways. And... Um, I don't know. It's a it's a difficult track. I don't know. F- f- it it was just uh, to nail it down was a bit a bit of a, a bit of hard work. There's lots of things that I like about that track, and sometimes producing a certain track, you go through a struggle. Like I can't I can't really nail it, and you have to have to redo it, I have to remix it. it, needs to be remastered, and it becomes it becomes a bit of a heavy track. You know, you're like ah. Well, okay, could have been done better. Like, I'm, I'm still not 100% sure about the mix or whatever. All these thoughts can pop in your head, and it, for some reason, there's all this attention drawn to this, to this track, whereas other tracks are like, oh, that was such an easy flow. And so sometimes I need to have a heavy title. This is maybe the bouncer. The bouncer of the album throws everybody out like we're done. Boom. You know, that's that. That's a, that's actually the answer to your question. Okay. It's the bouncer.
7: feel like you reached a higher level with this album
6: yeah definitely so far um like the first album came out in 2011 so that was done in up until 2010 it had also some old work on it and it was very very naive in many ways and then the second album i've changed my work methods i jumped from uh from um, computer sequencing to hardware sequencing and step sequencing and now I've thrown all the drum computers the standard drum computers overboard and started to use drum synthesizers and that's next level to find the right sounds with the right melodies for me that was a it was extremely fun learning process and I think for me personally you know I'm I'm going more into detail of how how tracks can be produced and at the same time also letting go of things not having to be perfect like it can be very static if you okay now this needs to happen because we're at uh, one minute twenty or you can just say like oh this tweak is completely in the wrong position but that's kind of funky or cool and and then just let let spontaneous stuff exist instead of just, you know, eyeing everything flat and just making a very predictable kind of song. It took me quite a while to get there though. It's a, lot, it's a lot, it's a lot about letting go and things not having to sound certain ways and just like, boom, done. This is the end. You know, don't have to end out with a, and f- the track with a fade out or a certain edit, like, oh, that's done. Boom. The raw and rough vibe can be um, perceived by not just making the perfect uh, ending or stuff like this. I'll tell you something, and I'm really sincere about it. Like, this feels like, yes, now I'm on a decent level. Because there's so much to do, and there's so much to learn, and there's so much to discover. Because music never stops. It's so open for interpretation.
2: That's the end of this month's edition of The Hour. Thank you very much for listening. If all goes to plan over the next few weeks, we'll have a guest presenter for you on the next edition of The Hour, bringing you a feature that looks at the ways DJs organize their music. Until then, be sure to check out our sister podcast, The Exchange, which you can find on R8 and over at SoundCloud at r8-exchange.